this time on Poll Hub, spoiler alert, no, not that kind. Spoiler as in a third party candidate who costs a major party candidate an election. Some say Ross Perot did that in 1992 and a couple of third party candidates did it in 2016. But what about 2024? We have brand new numbers for our poll with NPR and the PBS NewsHour on the impact RFK Jr. could have in next fall's election. Then billion dollar lottery tickets are sort of ho-hum nowadays, I guess, unless you won one. Uh, but how did we get here? It's been a long time since states introduced scratch-off games, but at that time, that was a bit scandalous. We're looking at how and why things changed and what the result has been. And we finish with one of the most important questions we have ever asked on this podcast. Chunky or smooth? No, seriously, very important. So let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. I'm Mary Griffith. And I'm Athan Hollis. Well, we couldn't resist this time around uh, asking about a third-party candidate. Uh, I know 2024 just feels like eons away, but as pollsters, you know, we're counting, we're counting the days till the, till the primaries uh, in the spring. And one of the things that I think uh, we get asked a lot, just, you know, at the, at the market, you know, among friends, uh, is kind of what's the latest thing on people's minds when it comes to uh, polling and politics. And one of the things has been What's the impact of third parties? And can a third party candidate really ever win a national election, given that we are set up as a two party system here uh, in the United States and not a parliamentary system? Uh, that uh, can be quite a tall task. So we tend to refer to the third party candidates as spoilers, um, not a terribly polite term and certainly one that doesn't uh, doesn't engender a lot of enthusiasm among third party candidates, but it's a, we think of them as spoilers because we have such a strong two party system that somehow we want to know which candidate of the major parties does this third party or independent candidate take votes from. And last week, RFK Jr. threw his hat in the proverbial general election ring as an independent to presumably to run against whomever the Democratic and Republican nominees are. And we're assuming at this point in time that we are looking, we may be looking at a redo between Biden and Trump. So we decided to not just ask the toss up, but to see then who people thought they might vote for. Should we put RFK in the mix as well? Just between Biden and Trump, it's, it's a very competitive race that we've seen in most national polls. We had a third, three points edge for Biden, but, you know, both under 50%. We don't, we even hesitate to call that an edge. They're very competitive, 49, 46. But Mary, let us know what happened. What happened when, when we went and threw another candidate into the mix? Well, Barb, when we throw Robert F. Kennedy Jr. into the 2024 presidential contest, what we find is that Joe Biden uh, opens up a seven percentage point lead over Donald Trump. 44% of registered voters nationally break for Biden, 37% break for Trump, and RFK Jr. receives 16%. So he really sort of does take some away from both candidates, but he does. But when we take a look at party, so Kennedy receives 9% among Democrats. He receives 11% among Republicans. The big difference here is among independents, where Kennedy receives 29% of the independent vote. And then when we take a look at Biden and Trump, 
it's about a third break for each of them. So what we're really seeing under the hood is that independents are selecting RFK Jr. Now, the question that I wanted to pose to each of you is how much of it is RFK Jr. or how much is how much of it is just another candidate? Are we seeing a situation or could we see another situation like we did in 2016 between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, where the race became very much about the lesser of two evils? I mean, I think that's a that's a, a much more likely scenario than t- 1992 when Ross Perot actually captured uh, the most sizable or one of the most sizable proportions of a third party candidate in U.S. history. Um, and some would argue through the election to Bill Clinton. Um, I think it's this is much more like either 2020 or probably more like 2016 when Jill Stein was running, got a couple of percentage points in a couple of different states uh, that. Hillary Clinton supporters argue cost her the election. Uh, Trump supporters say no such thing. I think it's probably more like that than RFK capturing 15 or 20 percent of the vote. I think what's interesting is that RFK spent most of the last few months running potentially as a Democratic candidate and spent most of his time on Fox News being heralded as a great Democrat. As soon as some of as our poll numbers and a few other, I think, internal numbers, because nobody's really shown this like we have. But about a week ago, mysteriously, Fox News turned on him (laughs) and are not big fans of RFK Jr. anymore. And I think that may have something to do with the fact that he hurts Trump more than he hurts Biden. Uh, And among those people who are saying, yeah, I'm going to vote for RFK Jr. And let's also remember, lots of people say they vote for third party candidates and then they don't. But let's say that they do. Uh, more of them are turning away from Trump than Biden. And I think that does have to do with the fact that we see in all of our polls and everybody's polls, nobody loves this field. I mean, Americans just don't love the choice of redoing 2020. So I think that, I think that's yeah, I where think, this is. I think that was very interesting to me. It, although we have had third party candidates running on the ballot in the past, I thought it was very interesting at this point in time that 16% of voters, that's nearly one in six voters, said that they would vote for RFK Jr. I know he has a popular name, but I'm not sure how real that is. That's a very baby boomer analysis because it's uh, actually been a couple of generations since Kennedy has really been in the national spotlight. So I think it's very interesting that one in six voters are really thinking about another option and considering another option. I think that's a a pretty powerful statement when we're putting, we're thinking about a redo for 2020. And Mary, as you pointed out, the independence, that's a really big deal because that's part right now of Trump's winning solution. He does much better among independents than Joe Biden. He did, I believe, even in 2020 and certainly in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. So for that group to be divided up almost a third, I think it is pretty telling that people are just looking for something else. I think so. And I think when we take a look just in terms of our elected officials in general, we've talked a lot about how so many of them are older and how voters are looking for fresh blood. And I know that's perhaps a bad term to use, but I think they are looking for the, the alternate. They want a different perspective. They want a different choice. And I think it also speaks very much to just how baked in our politics is, to quote Lee, who's not with us today, that we are partisan driven and that where we look at the two-way race, there is a wider, there is a wider break 
among independents, it really becomes very competitive among that group. And that's really where, what the election is going to come down to in the end. Janae, just one, one other thought. You talked about the fact that it being difficult to really gauge the vote a third party candidate is likely to get. What makes it a little bit more difficult than just our, than our, just our usual toss up question? Well, I think the people who say they're going to vote for third-party candidates, and we're seeing this, there's the independents. What do we know about the independents? They actually vote less than less often than people who identify as Republicans and Democrats. And they generally are less connected, less plugged in to politics than people who say they're Democrats and Republicans. Pew has shown a lot of this in their research on, on media. And so I think that's a, a big part of this is that when we look at third-party candidates, their appeal generally, obviously, is with independents. And independents are... Uh, less likely to participate in all the things that are required to get somebody elected president or, or to any office. And I think that's what we see uh, when we do these polls and we ask these questions is, I think the question that independents may be hearing is, what, do you like somebody other than the two candidates? Yes, I do. As opposed to, are you going to vote for them? Which is what we ask. I'm not sure they're answering the question that we're asking. Last week, someone in Southern California won the Powerball jackpot of $1.65 billion. And it got us wondering, how did the lottery start? And what are the odds that I could win more than a billion dollars? I'm going to guess those odds are very low since neither of us have ever won the lottery. But uh, the first scratch-off game was introduced in 1974 in Massachusetts. Today, 45 states, including D.C., Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, all sell lottery tickets. There are a few states that don't. Alabama, Alaska, Hawaii, Nevada, and Utah are all holdouts. They have vetoed uh, or passed on proposals to join uh, to open a state lottery or to join multi-state lottery programs. And we now essentially have two national lottery games, um, which you know very well because they all get over a billion dollars, Mega Millions and Powerball. And if you're wondering how gambling has become so normalized in our culture, maybe this statistic will help. Uh, U.S. adults spend about $100 billion on state lotteries every year, and states have come to rely on this money from lotteries for state revenue. Follow the money. Um, that's a lot of lottery tickets. Uh, the largest Powerball jackpot ever won went to another Californian uh, who hit a $2.04 billion prize. That's a lot of money. Yeah, but I wouldn't get your hopes up on winning the lottery anytime soon. The odds of winning the Powerball jackpot are about 1 in 292.2 million. The chances of winning the Mega Millions are about 1 in 302.6 million. That puts it in perspective. Those are very long odds. Well, to put it even more in perspective, you would have a much better chance of getting struck by lightning. If you bought a lottery ticket for every drawing, which is about five each week for 80 years, you would still be less likely to win than to be struck by lightning only once. So, I mean, these are, these are incredible odds. I mean, it's never going to happen. So why do people play their odds if it's nearly impossible? Why do people buy all these lottery tickets? Well, it seems like every person has an innate desire to win big, and that's what lotteries prey on. It's hard to understand these odds of winning when you're not shown any context or numbers to go with it. Well, you know, the lottery also has smaller prizes. I mean, I've won $2, $4. I generally just roll it over and play the next ticket. But I mean, the odds of winning those kinds of prizes are one in 25. That doesn't sound too bad. So why not just play those? 
Well, these smaller lottery tickets might seem like harmless fun, but when we look at who's really buying them, it paints a more complicated picture. Experts point to consequences of lottery tickets disproportionately affecting low-income families. These tickets might be bought out of desperation to win and not necessarily in good fun. Uh, Critics see the lottery as a regressive tax on the poor. The people buying the lottery tickets are those who can afford to lose their money the least. And it is true that 40% of lower-income Americans have bought a lottery ticket, and 11% of this same group say they gamble more than they should. But let's take a jump back in time to 1938 with what Americans thought of gambling all the way back then. A poll from Gallup in 1938 asked whether or not you would favor lotteries in your state to help pay for the cost of the government. Americans were actually pretty split at the time. 51% said they were opposed to the lotteries to help pay for the government, and 49% said they were in favor. And they asked uh, in 1938 also if Americans thought lotteries would bring unwholesome gambling spirit, I love that phrase, to the nation. And again, Americans were split. Same numbers. Uh, 51% of adults said, yeah, it's going to bring an unwholesome gambling spirit to the nation, and 49% said, nah, it, it wouldn't do that. Americans in 1938 are split on whether or not lotteries are good to fund the government, and they're also split on whether they bring an unwholesomeness to the nation. Maybe that's why it took nearly 40 years for the first lotteries to appear. Yeah, remember, it was in the 70s when Massachusetts started the first lotteries. That's a long time from the the time when these first questions about lotteries were asked. So it obviously was something people were talking about, governments were considering. But let's jump ahead to real recently, 81 years to 2019, when Ipsos asked Americans if they supported or opposed using state lotteries to fund schools. This is more specific than just funding government. And a lot of lotteries have pitched themselves as a way to fund uh, schools in a lot of states. 42% strongly supported this notion of using state lotteries to fund schools. Uh, 48% supported it. So that's a combination of 42 and 48. Do the math. That's 90% think this is a good idea. Only 8% opposed or strongly opposed it. So there's this giant shift in society and how we view the lottery going from being almost perfectly evenly split on whether it should fund government initiatives like schools or not to a huge majority. Uh, Really rare that we find this big majority in any polling in America fully supporting the lottery funding schools. Now that we've looked at this kind of societal shift, let's shift gears a little and say, if you were to hypothetically win the lottery, what would you spend your money on? Would you still work? And would you want to remain anonymous or tell the world about your jackpot? Is that a question to me? Sure. Um, So I've always, uh, I mean, we all, I think most people have dreamed a little bit about, you know, you hear a billion dollar or two billion dollar lottery and go, what would I do with that kind of money? Even if you don't play the ticket, you probably think about it. And uh, I've always said that uh, I would, sure, I'd buy some nice things and give stuff to friends and family and all that, but that I would uh, start a foundation to give it all away to causes that I care about. And my job would be to run the foundation. If you've got two billion dollars to give away, you can pay yourself pretty handsomely to give it away. There's a lot of lot you could do with that. So that's what I would do. I would start a foundation and I would give all that money away to causes that I care about. What about you? Um, I think I would probably still work. I think the first thing I would probably spend my money on is paying off my student loan. <laughs> um, and then I don't think I would be as focused on like salary or 
like saving money, I think I would be a lot more carefree with how I go about my career choices. Um, but I think I would definitely want to remain anonymous. Yeah, me too. I, I would want to do that. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned that because CBS News asked that very question in 2019 uh, of Americans. Do people who win the lottery, should they be able to remain anonymous? And a big majority, again, 86% said they should. But you can't do that in a lot of states. There are only 18 states where the winner can stay anonymous. And some have monetary restrictions on this. So you can remain anonymous if you win a small amount. You can if you win a big amount. Um, Arizona, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Kansas, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, lots of M's, Montana, New Jersey, North Dakota, South Carolina, Texas, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming are places where you can stay anonymous. So we're in New York. Uh, you're in Maine. When you play, if you play in Maine, Athens, um, we can't stay anonymous. And the same survey asked if Americans would share their wealth with friends and family. Slightly different question. And again, big majority. They want to remain anonymous, but a big majority, 87%, said, yes, I would share my wealth with friends and family. So oh. it looks like I have to buy my lottery ticket in New Jersey now. Um, <laughs> but so most Americans would share with friends and family and would stay anonymous. But would they keep working? Gallup asked this question in 2013, and 68% said yes, they would continue working. Only 31% said they would stop. And the same survey asked if they would keep their same job that they have now, or would they find a new one? And the results were almost the same. A majority, 65%, said that they would stay in the same job. But what would you do? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I would, you know, I would, uh, if it was a big enough lottery, you know, it's not like I want to stop working. It's just, I think I would want to do something different. Um, I, you know, I this is tricky. Yeah. I mean, I like this job. This is great. Um, and to be able to do it and not have to worry about money uh, would certainly give you the flexibility to tell the boss you only want to come in two days a week or, or something. So I guess there's different angles on it. Um, I mean, so you don't have a job yet, right? I mean, you do. You're, you know, student jobs, but uh, you said you would work. So if you won the lottery, you'd pay off your loans, but you'd go to work. Yeah, I think I would definitely still want to work and like do something, but I think I'd be a lot less worried about like where I'm going or how much I'm working. I think it would definitely be less focus on that and less focus on salary too. Yeah, well, you can afford to, so to speak, <laughs> not care about your salary. Um, you know, one thing about that though is uh, there are case studies, right? I mean, people have won hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. So what happens to them? Is being a lottery winner all it's cracked up to be? We actually have evidence about that. Well, seemingly it's not. According to the National Endowment for Financial Education, 70% of lottery winners go bankrupt within a few years of their winning. Ouch. Yeah, that's, that's rough. I wonder if that's true for the ones who win like a billion. Like it would be I think it would be hard to spend a billion dollars in a few years, but maybe that's just me. In the past 10 years, the lottery has seen, obviously, some big changes with these giant jackpots. Uh, they've become more and more frequent. Part of it is because states have pooled their lotteries. Part of it is that uh, the prices have doubled. So the lotteries are taking in more money from us and they're giving away more money. But as a proportion, they're not really giving away that much more money. Uh, and the odds, as we've discussed, are uh, really really, really long. Right, Adam? Yeah, it doesn't seem like the odds are in Americans' favor, but they will still hold out on their luck for a chance to win. 
Well, now on to the most important question of the day. Which type of peanut butter do you like best, chunky or smooth? And since Lee is not here today, I'm gonna, I have some very big shoes to fill uh, in this week's fun fact. According to a 2019 CBS News poll, 54% said smooth, and I am currently in that group. 30% reported chunky, um, 8% said both equally, and 8% said they don't like peanut butter. Now, I don't know who those eight people are, <clears throat> Athen, but th those are the results. And you know, I will just start off by saying when I was a kid, I think the novelty of chunky peanut butter was appealing, and I loved chunky peanut butter. The older I get, the less of an appeal it has. So I am a, a, a smooth peanut butter kind of person. What about so, your kids? Um, we have not bought um, chunky peanut butter, so they really have not been exposed to it. I whoa, want to test that. Whoa. I know. Whoa, you've kept it from them. Oh, my goodness. They are so deprived. Oh. Mary, that's a scary thing because I, I am a chunky peanut butter lover. Or that I surprises me. I, I thought it might. I thought it might, but I do adore it. And what's interesting is when I do go to the supermarket, I've often noticed that there is a lot more smooth peanut butter on the shelf than chunky peanut butter. And of course, here I thought, because I love chunky peanut butter, that the entire world liked chunky peanut butter, and that's why it was not so accessible. But what this poll tells me is that, in fact, the stores probably stock a <laughs> lot more smooth peanut butter yep. than chunky peanut butter. And that's why I haven't been able to find it. Well, I did invoke uh, Athens' name. So, Athens, why don't you weigh in? Where do you stand on the peanut butter debate? You know, I, I thought about this before we started recording, and I couldn't come up with an answer. And I think that's because I, I don't buy peanut butter. If I'm going to buy something, it's probably going to be um, almond butter. And I can't remember the last time I've eaten peanut butter. I do enjoy almond butter as well. Uh, as opposed to Athen, I think that Casey has some pretty strong feelings on the peanut butter debate. I am 100% chunky, and I'm also a brand loyalist to Skippy. It has to be Skippy. Can we say that on the podcast? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's Jif <laughs> versus Skippy was where I was going to yeah. go next. So sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Jay, weigh in. So I'm... Um, I, it's funny because I grew up with chunky peanut butter and I like chunky peanut butter better than smooth. Um, but it, it, my mom would never buy Jif or or any of those brands because they have sugar in them. And so she would only buy at the time. We lived in California. There's a brand called Laura Scudders uh, out there, which I think was bought by somebody. And it's like the natural peanut butter that's in the store now, you know, that that in all stores now. But um, she would always buy chunky where the oil separated. So even as a little kid, it was always frustrating. But I actually learned to love that a first open and then stirring. And I was so, you know, as a little kid, it's so hard to stir it. And so there was always work to get peanut butter. So I have a different question, though. What's your favorite jelly to go with peanut butter? Strawberry, hands down. Casey? Casey's, Casey's, Casey's hands down on that. She was thumbs down. Casey? Uh, grape. PB and J is just grape. I mean, I'll eat strawberry, but it's got to be great. School drink jelly. I love strawberry jelly. Well, no, it's actually grape. I like strawberry, but for peanut butter jelly, I'm a great person. Okay, and with your almond butter, Athen, which oh, what's your favorite? See, I'm much more passionate about the jam. I would say either <laughs> strawberry or raspberry. Yes. Ooh, yes. So I'm going to throw the big curveball here. I like orange marmalade. 
I like a bitter. Oh, yeah, I love oh. an orange orange oh. marmalade. Not, not sure, not sure I would go butter. there. I do enjoy orange mar- marmalade, but usually on salmon. Salmon? That's a different fun fact. That's like That'll do it for Pole Hub this week. Pole Hub is produced by the Maris Pole at Maris College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. The Pole Hub team includes Athan Hollis, Hannah Tone, and Rebecca Hendricks. If you enjoy Pole Hub, please consider leaving a review. Positive reviews help other listeners like you find us. If you have questions for us, tweet them at us at Maris Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub, and with any luck, it'll cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it, and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcast app as soon as it's released. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.